verse Bibles there. So you can look at it yourself as we were talking about earlier. It says, we're just gonna do 17 to 24. From Miletus, he sent, this is Paul speaking, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when he had come to him, he said, when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia and how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider myself, I do not consider my life of any account dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. And so last week I started off the whole message with just this question that a a seminary student asked his professor and he said, uh, what should I do in my first five years of ministry? And I don't know if you remember them, but he said, first, preach the word, love the truth. You gotta preach the word of God. Uh, The whole council as we'll get to later in Acts 20. Number two, we need to love the church. That should be a, 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 one of the greatest motivations that we have is not just to teach some truth to people un, unknown to us, but that we love the truth and we, we love the people we speak to and that we serve. Number three is that we invest in other people. Four, we raise up godly men and leaders of the church and also uh, lead our family well. Uh, and those are the four things. So last week we touched on Paul's love for the church. And if you remember last week, we saw him just exhort the people because he knew that truth is a, is a sign of love for the people. Um, that's one of the greatest things that we can do is, is, uh, is actually speak the truth to people. But we said also last week, Ephesians 4.15, that we must speak the truth in a gentle way, Right? We cannot be a jerk and speak the truth. We cannot have a, 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 a growling face when we speak the truth. We can be passionate, right? But when we speak truth, we're speaking in such a way that we know that that truth would ultimately set them free so that they would know God. And as they know God, it would be, it would, it, they, and they reject the ways of the world, which leads to destruction. They will have eternal life uh, to come, but they would also have life here on earth. And then also we saw that Paul, um, he gave uh, and he exhorted us to give as well. That is, uh, if you wanna really know God's heart, the greatest gift that he gave us was his son. And he gave us the gift of eternal life. That was something we could never earn. And therefore, when we give, uh, we are very much like God. Uh, Whether it's our time, our our talents we give to each other, um, but also our finances, our money. So Paul was a great example and he was worth emulating. And so throughout scripture, you'll see that there's so many examples and you'll see even Jesus saying uh, the same thing, that I was an example. He is the greatest, the greatest example, but also Paul said uh, that many times. We'll first start off with Jesus in John 13, 15. He says, 
For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did. Now, Jesus wasn't just an example. He was the Savior. He was God. We can never truly be 100% like him, uh, but we, uh, he lived a perfect, perfect life, and so we're to emulate him. But also in Hebrews thirteen seven, the pastor that wrote this, it says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, conduct, imitate their faith. 1 Peter 5, 3, don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. So many examples in leadership today have to do with control and God saying, look, when you control people, that is not godly leadership. Godly leadership does not lord it over, but prove to be examples. And we'll break down what an example is so that we can make it real for you guys and apply that. But 1 Peter 5, 3, Peter, I'm sorry, uh, that was uh, 1 Corinthians four sixteen. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. In fact, the verse before that, he was saying that I am a father to you. I'm not just a teacher, but I'm also a father to you. And he also says that many other places too as well. But Philippians three seventeen, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you have also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Timothy 4, 12, very familiar passage, let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and impurity, show yourself be an example of those who believe. We talk so much, he's saying example, 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 but what is an example? What does it look like? Paul was so confident. He said, look, you can imitate me. Can you say that confidently now? Could you say that confidently uh, to your kids? Can you say that confidently uh, to your spouse or uh, even the people in your life group, if you're a life group leader or even uh, any sort of leadership in your discipleship, can you look in, in, to the people that you do discipleship with, can you look them in the face with confidence and say, you can imitate me? Can you say that? Most of us would say, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in some areas, you're like, well, in this area, you can imitate me. And these three areas do not imitate me, if I'm honest, Right? But Paul was so confident. He was towards the, getting towards the end of his earthly ministry as far as being free, meaning that now he was starting to, he knew even at the end of this passage, he was gonna be bound and go to Jerusalem uh, and then eventually on his way to Rome and go to prison and then eventually be killed. But he knew that he could say with confidence, you can imitate me on these qualities and he's gonna break down the qualities. But what would you say in your farewell speech. Think about it. If this was the last time you were gonna see a group of people, what would you say to them? How would you leave? If you were a leader uh, of the church and you were, you know, we, we planted a church in Japan, if these were the last words I was gonna speak to you, knowing that I may not physically be with you ever again, what would I say to you? And we have those words. He does say that in verse 17, the latter half of that, uh, I'm sorry, in 18, he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility. And then he starts breaking down the qualities that he wants them to emulate as leaders of the Ephesian church. Now he was with them for three years that they, the, the number one 
purpose for an elder, which means overseer of a church, and he was talking to leaders of leaders, and he was saying, look, you need to protect the flock, which we'll get to later next week, which is very important, but you also need to feed the flock. Feeding the flock and protecting the flock are the, the qualities of leadership. That's why we do, sometimes you feel like, man, you say things so emphatically or just so confidently, uh, and we'll get to why that's important too, because leaders have conviction. Leaders also are humble, knowing that they're inadequate, and we find all of our strength, all of our knowledge in the Lord, that none of it comes within ourselves. We don't just make this stuff up and then lord it over people. Some do, of course, but that's not biblical leadership. They also have a true gospel, they have a balanced gospel. They, they preach both repentance, which is very important to call people to change their lives and come to Christ, but they also preach faith and grace. They also don't beat people over the head with the law, but they also use the law in a very profound way to show their inadequacy, but then show Christ's perfection and lead people to him so that they would be transformed. They have a full, complete gospel that they preach. They're not ashamed to preach repentance but they also endure to the end. They don't just start well. So many people start well. Anyone can do that. Everyone loves the honeymoon stage. Everybody loves that. And everybody gets that in a job, right? Everybody gets that in a, in a marriage. Everybody gets that in, in, their, in ministry, that's why we look at these people that have been with their church for 50 years plus, And it's like, wow, that's so amazing. I want to do that. Well, the reason why not many people do that because you realize how hard that is. Or when you look at someone who's been married for 50 some years, you're like, that's amazing. We were at a wedding and they were doing, those who've been married, uh, do the little dance thing, right? Everyone's up there on the stage, they're dancing. Okay, one year. Those who've been married for more than two and then more five. And then, and this couple was up there for 40 plus years. You're like, look, and you're like, man, how do they do that? It's not just given to everybody. It's work. It's costly. But Paul was saying, hey, I want to endure to the end. I want to fight the good fight all the way to the end. And that counts. And as men of the house, we need to model that for our kids, for our spouses, for our workplaces, that we are people of endurance, that we last. We want to be in it for the long haul. And so this is what he says. He continues, if you, if you see, I'm going to rattle off some scriptures that show you Paul's confidence. You know, so many leaders don't have confidence. They don't have a clean confidence. He says, I want to come to you, yes, with knowledge, with the gospel of Christ, but also with a clean conscience. How many of you guys say, hey, look, I, I come to you any day with the knowledge. I have that. The word of God has it. But how many of you know that it's very rare to find someone that has a clean conscience and comes to you with a clean conscience. So when they speak to you, they say, look, I know that, hey, I have, good, I have the good stuff. I'm bringing you the goods of the scriptures, but I'm also clean. I, I don't have anything to hide. I, I've, I have, I, I'm the same person in the dark that I am in the light. Very rare quality. And so you'll hear Paul, just hear him and how he speaks with such confidence. And he's not saying this in some arrogant way. He really is like this. And it's saying that it's possible for us to be like it. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, 5, and 10 and 11, okay? Um, it says here, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you 
was not in vain. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. How many of you know do that, right? How many know the televangelists just trying to get your money so they're flattering to you? Paul's like, I don't want anything to do with that. I didn't come to you in vain for myself. I came on to you on behalf of the Lord for we never came with flattering speech ever. We don't have a desire to, to be greedy and take your money for God is witness. He sees everything. I have nothing to hide. I might tell you this, but you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I got to live inside my body and inside my mind. And I'll tell you, your conscience is the best thing you have. It's a gift. Don't sear it. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we've behaved toward you, believers, just as you know we are, we, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. He's a dad. He wants his kids to grow up in the Lord. He will exhort when it's necessary. He will also encourage when it's necessary. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full with conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us in the Lord and also with much tribulation. It was costly. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any one of you. Now, he also says in other places that he was worth his pay. But in this context, because people were thinking, oh, he just wants to share these things so that um, he would get paid or, or he's just in, in it for the money. Paul's like, look, I'm just gonna work a second job, so to speak, so that you understand I'm not coming here to preach to you because of money but follow our example to offer ourselves as a model to you so that you would follow our examples. Second Corinthians 1.12, for our pride confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshy wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. And then I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but Second Corinthians 6, 3 and 11, he commends, our, uh, that he commends himself to the people of God as servants in much endurance, in afflictions, and hardship, and patience, and genuine love. He shares all these things because he wants you to know that no matter what the circumstances are surrounding leadership woes and ups and downs, he's in it for one reason, or I should say really two, to please the Lord because he's called him into this. It's the highest form of motivation is to please the Lord and also to love the people, so that they're built up in Christ. Amen? 2 Timothy 3.10 says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. There's so many things we can talk about, but we're gonna focus on a few here. And next week, we'll talk about the false teaching. And really, what Paul's doing in this passage is he's, he's, he's setting something up. He's, he's saying, look, this is why you can emulate me. I'm gonna break this down because you know what? I want you to eventually tell your leaders, the people that you're raising up one day when you're getting towards the end of your life, I want you to confidently say to them, hey, this is what I want you to know. 
Guys, it's a generational thing, right? Second Timothy 2, 2, right? It's, it's, it's what I, I've received something from somebody else and then I'm gonna give that to the next generation and it keeps going and keeps going and it keeps going. What does that tell you? Everything that you've received, you've been given. There's nothing new. You're not the greatest gift to man uh, or the earth has ever known. The wonderful thing is that there's really nothing new. I mean, anything I say is somebody said it already. Either I read from the scriptures or quoted somebody else and they're just quoting somebody else and quoting somebody else. All truth originates in God. And that ultimately keeps us humble, doesn't it? We just are people pointing people to Jesus. There's no pressure that way. We have nothing to prove. We can be in it for the long haul because we don't put that kind of unnecessary pressure on ourselves or each other. But he is defending against, he is, our, he is I'm sorry, he is warning these people in the next, next week, we'll talk about it, but he's warning them about the wolves to come. So he, in one sense, is defending his, himself. He's saying, look, this is my ministry. It's pure. And I want you to know that. But he's also getting ready to teach them and say, look, there's going to be a contrast. You'll see me, Paul's saying, but you'll also see some other guys and they may not have the same motives as I do. Amen? All right, so number one, humble servant. That is the first quality, humble servant. And I, and I would say this, that most translations have this wrong. It says that uh, a bond servant or a servant, in fact, Romans 1, 1 says, a bond servant of Christ called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God it, it, that word servant means slave. And what he's saying is that he is subject to another person. He's indebted. He's, he's, he's a, he is a slave of Christ. He's not just a servant as someone who can get in and out of a service. It's not just a job. It's not like, hey, I'm hired by this guy and then you know, I've quit and then I'm gonna be hired by this guy. He's saying, look, I am a slave to Christ forever. And I think that is important for us to understand that, that we are, as when we are ministers of God, we're slaves. He's our owner. He calls the shots, not us. It's a powerful word. It goes beyond just being a minister or pastor or a servant. And those are important as well in wonderful terms, but this goes even deeper. And in fact, in fact, Acts 27, 23, it says, God, whom I belong to and whom I serve. I belong to him. That is the first mark of a servant. Do you want to be a minister of God? Understand you are a slave to him. I am owned by him. In other words, I'm not going to build my ministry, as some say, Right? I belong to him. Do you know how much pressure that takes off of myself even and our elders? We belong to him. God, in other words, Jesus isn't helping me in my ministry. And I will say it this way, I'm not helping him in his ministry. He's living through me in his ministry. That's how it works. Do you understand? It's subtle, but it's very important. I'm scared when people say, my ministry. 
and I'm helping God complete the task. Really? You're helping God complete the task? It's not your ministry. It's his ministry. And with that, I'm free. I don't have this kind of pressure. Now, you might ask, why is that important? Because Paul said that gave him a fear of God. Listen to this. Galatians 1.10, for I am now seeking the favor of men or of God. What am I doing? Am I seeking the favor of men? Am I man-pleasing, just saying things the way they want me to say them? Or am I saying it the way God wants me to say it? Because it's his word that I'm preaching, not my own. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, that I would not be a slave of Christ. That's the right translation. You're either a slave of Christ or you're a slave of man. And there's a big difference. The implications are profound. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Church, we have got to have, whether you're in ministry or not, you've got to have a fear of God. The fear of God is so important. It's the beginning of right decisions. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. Also, Proverbs says that the fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. It traps you. You're in bondage. You know those feelings of just being in bondage to, uh, to the people's thoughts and opinions. And you begin to form them. Even you know people, and maybe you've been in a situation and you're, 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 uh, you're cowering to man and you're, you're, you're mincing words just to try to please them or get a reaction out of them. It's pointless and futile. It just doesn't, it, it leads to destruction. We know those feelings, don't we? Something we battle, honestly, for every day, probably, in our workplace, in our relationships. Like we're about to share truth with a brother or sister, and we're like, you know, maybe it's not the timing. And true, it may, it may not be the setting or the timing, and that's something you have to ask God and be led by the Spirit. But sometimes, if you're honest, you don't share that because you're so concerned about what they might think, right? Right? Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Live to please the Lord. We're a slave. We owe him our whole lives. What a privilege. What an honor. God is the head of the church. The highest motivation to serve him is to, uh, the highest motivation is to serve Christ. We're in it for him. We're not building Antioch for our own purposes to give a name to Antioch. That is so important, guys. The implications are profound in that. That if we're in the city and we operate, are we operating on behalf of Antioch? Because I hear this so much. You know, whole companies are, are putting colors, you know what I mean, for Pride Month in their, in their every single one. Isn't it interesting that Volkswagen... Uh, you know, is, is putting, you know, in Canada, they're full colors for Volkswagen in Canada, full uh, colors for United States. 
Full for Europe. Full colors, uh, the, the colors in the Volkswagen logo. This is just to please man, by the way, for sales. That's all it is. They don't care about people. But the Middle East, no colors. Isn't that interesting? Why? If they did that, (laughs) there would be no Volkswagen in the Middle East, (laughs) would there? We need discernment, don't we? But this is what it means to please man. The world's doing it all the time, aren't they? They're not doing it for any reason other than to more money and money behind it or to please man. I mean, that's, that's why they do it. But that is no business in the church, right? There's no, that, there's no place in the church to please man. But ultimately, to serve God, no matter the cost, saying he's my Lord, he's my Savior, and my Lord at the same time. Whatever he says I'm doing that. What a wonderful freedom that is, that we're slaves to him. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. We're doing it ultimately for the glory of God. Paul's saying, I'm doing this for his glory and your, to, for your benefit so that you will have an example before you so that when I'm gone, you will know how to live. God is setting examples. We have all church history to look at wonderful examples for us. When we get down in the dumps and we're like, man, we're discouraged and we don't know which way's up. We're reading the scriptures, but you know, it's wonderful to read a, uh, uh, something in church history that will encourage us, like a David Brainerd, you know, or, or Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield and, and even uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, said this, he says, Sometimes, you know, even when I'm feeling like, ah, I just preached the best message I could have possibly preached, it is good for you to go to George Whitfield and his journals to realize you probably didn't preach the best message. It keeps you humble. It also keeps you encouraged. We need these examples for those purposes. And God gives us plenty, plenty. Certainly don't come from the world. Ephesians 6, 5 and 7, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. You can look at that as an employer-employee relationship according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by eye service, as man-pleasers, but as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. That's how you're supposed to work in your workplace. You don't just keep doing your job and then looking over like, man, my boss didn't see me for... I was just doing such a good job. He always sees the bad, but he never sees the good. You know who sees the good? God. Do you think he's big enough to promote you? If you live with that mindset, it's so freeing. And you never have to... Because now you incur occurring God's judgment when you do that, right? You're like, oh, like you did a good deed but then you literally just switched to I have to let man see that and now you just lost your reward, so to speak. And that shows us that ultimately we believe that the world's eyes are bigger than God's and they're not. God's eyes are much bigger and God's eyes are, 
they, he can see everything. He sees the, not only the action, but the motive. It's so important. You know, even in, in, in defeating sin in our life, that's so important, isn't it? That sometimes we're like, we, we get to the point in our lives where we refrain from the outward anger and, and, and we don't maybe explode anymore like we used to. But man, inside, we're just yelling at him. We're, cur- we're cursing him inside. It's, we, we've, just, we've just shifted our sin from an external to an internal, but it's the same thing because God sees it. And that's, that's in every area. That might be the area of lust or, 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 or greed or envy and all those things. You might not have an outward manifestation of that anymore. And you might think, oh, I'm growing. But that's not true growth. True growth is defeating that sin, knowing that God sees everything. And that keeps us humble. Keeps us where we need to be. Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of, inher- of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Over and over and over again. And listen to this, Matthew 25, 34 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, this is Jesus speaking. Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did you see you, when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. God sees everything. He sees every act of service you've ever done and ever will do for the rest of your life. And he will reward you accordingly. Now, after all that, you think, is there any point in pleasing man? (laughs) Just doesn't make sense. So God is looking for humble servants. And ultimately what he's looking for too is that humility part. He's looking for those who acknowledge his power. Now look, I will say this on the flip side, or not even really the flip side, I would say in addition that you are gonna do great things for God, but him, his power working in and through you, right? It's not to downplay, it's not the, oh, I'm nothing, it's like, you know, you greet somebody at the door. It's like, hey, man, I'm glad you're here. We're, we're, thank you for serving. I'm just nothing. Just go along. <laughs> it's like, what kind of a church is this? <laughs> Don't do that. That's not at all what, but he's saying, if you came to church with joy, how many, how, I'll put it this way. How many people come and you have a, a you either serving the children's or you serve up up front, you serve and set up and tear down. You got to mix and mingle with people or you're in the worship, and you had like a fight before church, right? Or you had something go wrong, or you had the air conditioner break, or something happened, flat time. I mean, just something you're like, God, I'm going to church. I'm serving you. Like, help me. Like, bring the blessings so I can give the blessings, right? Who are you doing it for? We don't... But we know that the power works in and through us. 
So when you do shake someone's hand, you might think that's maybe insignificant, but God, his joy is working through you to greet another person. His power is working through you to get over yourself so that you can look at a child and say, the Lord loves you. He gives you, he will give you perseverance. And you taste that perseverance in your own life, you'll give that away to those little ones. It's not about us, is it? God's called us, in fact, in heaven, which is so amazing, he says in Revelation 7.15, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night. We'll never stop serving him. We'll never stop giving homage to the king who sits on the throne and will spread his tabernacle over him, his presence over him, over us. Never. And if that sounds boring to you, then you won't like heaven. Heaven is wonderful because we're just gonna serve him, the king. It's amazing. And of course, you know, the best thing about it is we won't have any sin anymore. The remaining sin that we have now, Romans 7, we won't have that. That'll be, I, have, I think that's the most glorious thing. But even the, the most glorious, we'll, we'll see him as he is. We'll see him as he is. He's looking for people who acknowledge his power. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, it says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul's saying, what, I mean, who are these? I mean, what is uh, Kevin? What is Eric Schultz? Uh, Mike Pabone? I mean, <laughs> Hunter. Who, what are, I mean, who are, I mean, we're just servants of the Lord. We all have a unique gift to bring to the church, to serve the church. But the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. Certainly the strength doesn't come from me because I persecuted the church of God. He was willing to just show who he really was. He knew that like when God, when Jesus showed up to me in Acts 9 and, and, and just knocked me off my horse and blinded me and called me, who am I? I was, I was on my way to kill your people. Talk about Grace. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that there we are adequate in ourselves, considering anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You know, people say, you know, if, if someone calls you up to service, hey, could you do this? And maybe it's a little bit more, you know, uh, it requires a little bit more. Oh, no, you know, I, I just, I couldn't. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I think there's a place for that. Like, I don't know, maybe I, I don't know about a missionary. I don't know about, there needs to be an element of that. Not like, oh, about time, pick the right guy. I'm always with you people this whole time. But also equally saying, like Paul, I am inadequate. But you know what? In my weakness, he is strong. His grace is sufficient. I work harder than all you guys. Why? Because the grace of God works in and through me. 1 Corinthians 15 Ephesians 3a says, I'm the least of all saints. 1 Timothy 1.15, I'm the chief of sinners. Could you honestly say that? Could even one of you elders, to challenge you elders, could you honestly say that to the people that you serve? Say, I'm the chief of sinners. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't be an elder then. Paul wasn't just saying that to do lip service, to look humble to his people, was he? He's like, look, if you knew me, and he went, look, he had character. That's why he could say at the same time, you can emulate me. 
I am an example to you guys. But at the same time, I'm the chief of sinners. How is that? It sounds like such a contradiction, doesn't it? But it is possible to, be, to turn the world upside down for the Lord and yet be on your face. And I'd make an argument that those who are on their face will turn the world upside down. Because that's how it works. Augustine said this in the 400s AD. For those who would learn God's ways, listen to this. Humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing. And humility is the third thing. Humility is pretty important, isn't it? In fact, our Lord was that way in Philippians 2. To save humanity, he became humble and gave up everything to serve you. Richard Baxter says, I was but a pen in God's hands. And what praise is due to the pen? (laughs) What praise is due to the pen? Guys, we must have this mindset, this way of doing life and doing ministry. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I rather boast about my weaknesses so that power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Serving the Lord is not easy. It will come at a great cost. But understand, when we keep going back to God, I'm inadequate for this job. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to actually do this well. God, would you move through me? And he does. Ambrose, look at all the people. They, if you, as I was looking through church history, most of them ran from their calling. And it wasn't some sort of false humility. It wasn't like, no, no, I, I couldn't possibly. It was Ambrose, St. Ambrose ran from his calling. People needed to chase him down to confirm his call. John Knox, one of the reformers, wept at his calling and ran away as well. And then finally, later on, he had to come to grips that perhaps the Lord is calling him and wanted to use him. What a humble thing. John Piper says this, so let us work hard, but never forget that it is not us, but the grace of God which is with us. Let us spread the gospel far and wide, spend ourselves for the sake of the elect, but never venture to speak of anything except that what Christ has produced in us. In all of our serving, may God be the giver and may God get the glory. Let that be said of us. Charles Spurgeon said this, if we give God service, it must be because he gives us grace. We work for him because he works in us. I love this prayer of Hudson Taylor. He said, I used to ask God to help me. And then I asked if God, can I help you? And then he realized I ended up asking him to do his work through me. And that's how he was able to reach China for Christ. And that should be all of our prayer. That God wants to work through you. And it's amazing. What an energy, I mean, what a, uh, it's just adrenaline almost just to see how God would work through me when we go on our mission trips and when we serve him in different ways in this body and feeling like we're starting. I mean, you guys should, you should feel so free to start ministries. And you might be thinking, whoa, hold on. What if everyone just starts ministries? That's gonna be kind of scary. What if people have the wrong motives? We just preached 
God's word. We, we know that if you have a motive other than the glory of God and knowing that he's going to work in and through you, what are, we, what are we afraid of? Our girls were just starting a middle school ministry with middle school girls and just started as a just handful of girls get together and they're pouring into them, they're loving them and I'm so proud of them. I mean, we talk about it uh, often. They, they were giving me testimonies and what God's doing with the middle school girls. That's incredible. That's how it should be in this church. If you want to serve the poor, serve the poor. If you're doing it just to be recognized, then Paul even said, look, even if you do it with the wrong motive and the, and the poor is being served and the gospel is being preached, then wonderful. Even if people are trying to do it against me to try to compete with me, or the, then if it's being done, wonderful. If Christ is being preached, but they may lose their reward. This is a free church to inspire people to do the work of ministry. Not anybody can't just be, even the, the, the ministry of, a, of eldership, it, to aspire to be an elder. What a wonderful thing that is. You don't just waltz right into it. You need to be called into that. You need to be called into being a missionary overseas. But there are other things that you should never be hindered here in this church to go and serve the community, to go feed the poor, to go evangelize neighborhoods, to go disciple the people in this church. I mean, it's endless. To be a part of human trafficking, to help, to help uh, end human trafficking, not be a part of that, but end, to be, end human trafficking, uh, to, to speak against abortion. To, I mean, there's, it's endless. It's endless, 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 endless. And I don't need to list your ministry for in order for you to be inspired. God will call you into that. And the church will come around and lay hands on you and to send you out and to do the work of God. What a wonderful, amazing thing. This is freedom in this church. And yes, you'll be accountable. Yes, you'll have feedback. Of course, it always comes with it. But that's important for you to know that. God is looking also, as Paul said here, he says, I've, I've said that I've come to you with humility and also with tears and trials. What does that say? God is looking for people that will suffer in their ministry. It won't be easy for you. It's not just gonna be easy. And then that's why ministries start and sometimes they end and they shouldn't. They should continue. Why? Because if it is really truly of God and you're the right person for that, it should end or you find somebody to take your place. But Paul said, look, I've, I know that when I sign up for this, I will suffer for this. Why is it that when, when ministries, it's so easy to start ministries. It's so easy to start things. But haven't you noticed though, it's, it's not easy to finish and to maintain them? That's a problem. And, that, and Paul understood, he, he knew that when, in fact, in Acts 9, when someone spoke over to him and said, you will suffer for my name. You will do great things for me, but I just want to let you know, you're also going to suffer for my name. In 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He meant not just pastors, but everyone, every Christian. If you live just even a godly, I don't want any ministry because I know suffering will come in. Well, just to be a Christian, to live a godly Christian life, you will be persecuted. It's for everyone. Acts 14, 
22, he says, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. It's for everyone. Paul suffered because it also pained him to see people that he loved reject the gospel. It should pain us when people don't receive our message. And it's really God's message. Does that bother you ever? It's like, oh, well, whatever. No big deal. You know, just for unity's sake, we'll, we'll sort of tone it down a little bit. We love people, so therefore we plead with people to know the truth. And it hurts us when they, when they reject. In fact, listen to Paul's words here, Romans 9, 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. When was the last time you had unceasing grief in your heart? That's not just for pastors. It's for us as people, as we look at our family rejecting Christ, as we look at our people, our workplace, and they don't know who he is, that should bother us. I wish I myself would be accursed, separated for Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen. He's talking about the Jews, his own kind. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, and that I, that I, that, uh, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Philippians three eighteen, even with weeping, he would speak to them. Acts 20, verse 31 Therefore, be on alert, remembering that day or night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He says that later on in Acts 20. And even Jesus said this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. I remember giving a message, what, maybe about a couple months ago, just about the motivation for evangelism. The number one motivation for evangelism has got to be love. He's compelled by love. And that should cause us to weep when we see people not accept this amazing, glorious gospel. And then even the psalmist said in 126, verse six, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Paul knew that a plot was coming in verse three in chapter 20. And he knew that they came and listen to this, in Pisidian Antioch, Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and now is journey to Jerusalem. It cost him everything. And he still maintained this sense of, I love you. I want you to know what it means to be a Christian. I want you to know what it truly means. Don't let others tell you what it means to be a Christian. Take it from the scriptures. This was a man of God. I'm gonna have to skip a few verses here, but I I think it's, Important to even know that just even physically, he escaped from dangers, from robbers, from journeys, from uh, countrymen. And uh, just, he says, dangers, 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 dangers. He continued to talk about this and he knew what he signed up for. And he said this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that I know that I'm a, uh, 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 this, I have this treasure in earthly vessels, earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God, not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. It doesn't end us. Every time something comes against us, we don't go, oh, you know what? Maybe I need to put, throw in the towel. It's too hard. It's too difficult. We want a church that knows how to endure through trials and tribulations and still says, I'm in, I'm in the game. Knows how to finish well. Knows how to be a humble servant because they know that they are slaves of Christ knowing that 
their power is from the Lord, not from themselves. They're not destroyed by the things that come against them. Number two, here that in verse, uh, verse 20, it says, not only that was he a humble servant, he modeled that, but he also, he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul was a man of conviction. I cannot tell you how many times I came across this word this week. It just kept popping. I mean, I'd watch some things and boom, conviction, 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 conviction. He did not shrink back of telling them the truth. That word shrink back means to withhold or to be timid, to hold information back because he knows the cost of it. He was a man of conviction. And in fact, in Galatians 2, 11 to 21, which I won't read, but he came to Peter and he what? He rebuked him to his face. He said, look, I love this church so much. I love the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles should come together and you can't act like this. So I will not shrink back in telling you the truth. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 9 and 10, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in, great con- in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. And then in a, a, um, Ezekiel 33, it says, Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel so that you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to you, wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you did not speak to warn the wicked from this way. This is very important for today, isn't it? That wicked men shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. We are watchmen. And we're responsible to speak the truth and not to shrink back to speak truth to one another. That is important, not just because you're a leader or you're an elder, but to one another and using the word of God as the basis of your conviction. R.C. Sproul said this, I worry that when I stand before Christ at his judgment seat, he is going to say, R.C., what did you keep back? What are you afraid to preach? How much of my counsel did you declare to the people under your care? It was your task when I consecrated you to hold nothing back to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Amen? He didn't shrink back because he had conviction. Let me ask you, do you have conviction? My, uh, my son, Caleb, he's learning about logic and fallacies. And so he's always testing me as he's going around the house. He gives me a scenario and he's like, what fallacy is that? And so I, nine out of 10 times I get it wrong and so he corrects me. And then, and uh, <laughs> he came up to me the other day. He said, what do you get when you, when you combine uh, uh, feelings and truth? When you put feelings in truth, your feelings, how you feel in truth together, what is that? I don't know. It's a good question. It's an opinion. Convictions are not formed by your feelings. 
They're formed by the scriptures. And every one of you should have convictions. And by your convictions, we speak truth. And when we speak truth, we set people free. It's a wonderful cycle. Those who want to know the truth, when we study uh, Ezra 7, 10, it says, you study the truth, you know the truth, you read the truth every day, you study it, and then you teach it. And so that you form a conviction, you teach it so that others can have that conviction and they want to study and the cycle continues that this would be a church of conviction that we owe nothing back. Second Corinthians, listen to this, Paul is simple. Second Corinthians 4.13, I believe, therefore I spoke. That's easy. I believe. What do you, what, faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God, therefore you believe and therefore you speak and you have power behind your words. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that there are other people who are prepared to argue and discuss and even change their opinion, but they do not do anything about it. The evangelical, however, is a man who acts on his convictions. There would never been Protestantism if it weren't true. Martin Luther certainly had conviction, didn't he? Bird the Reformation. How many are thankful for that? Al Mohler said this, when a leader walks into the room, a passion for truth had better enter with him. Authentic leadership does not emerge out of a vacuum. The leadership that matters most is convictional, deeply convictional. He wrote a book on it. This quality of leadership springs from those foundational beliefs that shape who we are and establish our beliefs about everything else. Convictions are not merely beliefs we hold, They are those beliefs that hold us in their grip. The word of God should take a hold of our lives. We would not know who we are, but for those bedrock beliefs. And without them, we would not know how to lead. It's so important for leaders to have conviction. And I think that's important, guys, because a lot of times you might, we might as a church get a bad rap. Wow, you're so confident. You know, I wish you would just be, I haven't even heard this, not be so confident in in the truth. What? What? Because you've been trained by the culture, by cultural Christianity that says, hey, if you're critical, you're not loving. Right? If you're critical or you're confident of of the truth, then you're not unified. You're going to disunify with others. Back to the fear of man, right? And you might be thinking, well, how do you know what you're, you know, the, the relativism, right? How do you know that's truth then? How, I mean, how you can't really, really, you can't really know, you can't really know, know that. I mean, you weren't there, you weren't Paul. What do you say to that? Do you want wimpy leaders? You want people that, well, I, I just don't know, you know, I just don't know. I don't know what it says. I mean, it might say that. What in the world is that? But you see that in Christendom all the time. I mean, you see that on TV all the time. As one said, give me men who know the truth. Give me men who know the truth. Conviction causes me to stand up and live for the Lord with confidence, knowing that this word is what it says. It, it is inspired It is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is preserving, 
It is sufficient. Amen. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Second Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed or not confident for training in righteousness. And this is, he, he is training in righteousness, he is correcting, he's rebuking, he's accurately handling the, wor- uh, handling the word of truth. He knows the truth, it'll set us free. It gives us confidence. Only this conviction doesn't come from, from anything else but by hearing the word, by reading the word, by studying the word. It doesn't come from, from, uh, from stirring your emotions up and being loud. It comes from something way deeper, something way more profound and long-lasting. Alistair Begg said this, just because someone is sincere in his conviction does not mean that it is true. It is possible to be sincerely wrong. That's why it is important that, you know, even uh, I said before from Moeller's book here, Christian convictions take possession of our heads and hearts through Christian teaching and preaching of the word of God. As a matter of fact, most of us gain our most fundamental convictions in just this way. We hear them, see them to be truly revealed in the Bible, and then we believe them. And you know what, though? I will say this. Try having those convictions in your workplace. You know, two weeks we talked about abortion. We also talked about transgenderism and Pride Month, and we talked about things that are hot topics today that the Bible clearly, clearly speaks about. And it is always fair game for the Christian. And that does not mean they're being political. Do you realize that word, oh, you're being political, that is the world's way, that is the devil's way to get you to think, oh, oh, it's political, therefore I can't talk about it. You see how twisted that is? No, you could talk about it because the word talks about it. You could talk about it because God talks about it. That's why you could talk about it and not feel embarrassed or ashamed. Because when you know the truth, you will not be ashamed. You will have conviction. And that conviction is all you have, right? You lose that, you lose everything. You really do. Spurgeon says this, a sermon often does does a man good, most good, when it makes him most angry. Those people who walk down the aisles and say, I will never hear that man again. Which, by the way, that happens very often have an arrow irritating in their breast. Sometimes it's their, their problem. Why? Because they're offended by the truth. And you know what even offends them even more? The confidence in which it was delivered. It's like, I wish you just shared the truth just in this nice, wonderful. Do you know, I've said this before, if you don't want the truth, you could stand here right here and I could get down on my knees and hand out $100 bills to you and speak the truth and you still would reject it and run away. Unbelievers hate the truth and those who are in sin hate the truth and I'll go so far as they hate God. They hate God. When you love the truth, You get to see who Jesus truly is. And as you see him, see him as he is, it changes your life. It changes your life. 
Al Mohler says communication requires courage for the very simple reason that if your convictions mean anything at all, someone will oppose you. If opposition to your ideas and beliefs offends you, do not attempt to lead then. Every leader knows the experience of rejection and opposition. You must prepare for it, expect it, and deal with it when it comes. Amen? All right. We're going to close here. Well, we only, uh, I guess, discussed two verses. So I suppose we have a few more to go. We'll make it quick. What's that? That's a, when, he, when someone says you got all day, I'll, I'll take him, but then it's his fault for saying that so you could jump him after service. <laughs> the man's got convictions. <laughs> but I love this. I, I, one, one last little note on this, which is really important. What Paul says here in verse 20 is that he didn't shrink from declaring the truth publicly and house to house. So what does that mean? it really does include us in this. That we are all called to, at the very least, go to life group and be in our discipleship groups and to speak truth to one another. You might be thinking, well, you know, none of this applies because I'm never gonna be a pastor and I'm never gonna be up there speaking truth and I don't have anything to worry about. No, you do have some things to concern yourself with because we are disciple makers. We bear the name of Christ. We are Christians, and that means we speak truth. That means we don't hold anything back. And nowadays, unfortunately, I need to carry that little caveat with it all the time now because I don't want to be misunderstood. But we must do it with gentleness and respect. We must do it in love. First Peter 3.15 and Ephesians 4.15. In verse 21, and we'll close here, we'll just read these last few verses. In verse 21 says, he's solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bond, <coughs> excuse me, bonds and afflictions await me. You know, most people, when that would happen, they knew that that would probably happen. They'd say, look, you know what? Maybe I need to go another route. I can always write there. I, I could go to the island of Patmos and just write. It'd be a much easier deal. And Paul knew he was called to this. He knew he'd die for this. He knew the cost. And he said, I'm going to finish. I'm going on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except therefore the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account. Why? Because he's a slave that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly the gospel of what? Of the grace of God. So number three, he carries the true message of Christ, which is what? Repentance and faith. And he did not, one little thing here he said is he did not discriminate between Jew and Greek, which was a big deal then. I don't have time, but I've mentioned in other services uh, here as well. Um, you know, in the, when we're going through the book of Acts, the importance of that, that uh, he did, unif the gospel unifies both Jew and Greek and the wall in Ephesians 2 has been broken down. Uh, 
and so that the gospel is for all people of all nations, according to Romans 1, 14 and 16. But, uh, you know, I will say that um, many times you see that the gospel is extremely shallow today, isn't it? Can you believe? I, I never thought in my... doesn't come by people having dreams of Jesus. Nope. Because you don't find that in the Bible. Christianity is, today it's amazing. People are making stuff up left and right because they're trying to get rid of the what? Offense of the gospel. They are, aren't they? All the time we're trying to figure out ways. In fact, I mean, people even said uh, on the streets, they were saying something about a false teacher, uh, that, or that this cult had false teaching and, and just saying, hey, uh, that, that's, that, that's a, that was started by a false prophet and false teacher and uh, hey, maybe they're not ready for that. There are pastors in the church that pastor people that have such a heart for the church, a heart for believers. And I'm so thankful for people who are empathetic And you know, you could be empathetic. You can be empathetic. You can be the most loving, kind, get down on your knees together and weep with with each other and love each other and, and, and speak comfort to one another, but also be bold with the gospel preaching. Because Paul modeled that, as we'll see, with tears. He had such compassion for his leaders. He loved his leaders. He was with them with tears and weeping, saying, I'm with you and I want you to know the truth. And I want you to not, just as I didn't shrink back in telling you everything. And that's, by the way, that's how you become who you are because I didn't shrink back. Do you ever think about that? The fact that you have fruit is because you don't shrink back. And many people think, oh, just shrink, just a little, little, shrink it back just a bit and then they'll, they'll come around. We're playing a game. I'm done with the game. I don't know about you, but I'm done. We don't need to do that. Just unleash the truth and do it with love. And it'll come through. You don't have to worry about that. And God will, God will grow his church. He always does. But he preached repentance, meaning that you need to know your sin and you need to turn from your sin. 180, 
This isn't just like come to Christ and all your sins will be washed away and then you could just go back to it. But he preached repentance saying that if God's grace got a hold of your life, then you'll turn from that sin. You'll hate it for the rest of your life. And you'll mortify it. And you'll spend the rest of your life mortifying it, killing it for the rest of your life. You'll, that's just what you'll do because you'll hate it more and more and more. In fact, 25 years from now, you'll, you'll, you'll hate just the littlest, littlest thing. For, I mean, you, you are full blown into that sin and just even the thought of it, even to talk about it out loud, the Bible says, even to talk about sinful things out loud, you won't even, have a, you, you won't even want that taste in your mouth because it's so repulsive. You hate sin. And also, unapologetically, we call people to not only to repentance, to turn away from their sin, but to come to Christ by faith. Acts 10.43 says this, everyone who believes in Christ is forgiven. John 20.31, everyone who believes Christ has eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift from God, not as a result of your works, so that no one would boast. Amen? Let's be confident in that. We don't have to play a game. Oh, is this works? Is this a works gospel? Is this the, just preach repentance and faith? And you can uh, turn to, not now, but you can write these in your notes, but Acts 2, 36 to 41. Acts 2, 36 to 41. You can look at that sermon from Peter again. And if you're wondering, man, what, how do I preach the gospel again? I kind of forgot. I need a little reminder. Just go there. And people, after you preach the, if you preach the gospel, repentance and faith, this is what will be the result. People get saved, truly saved. What a wonderful thing that is. And last but not least, he is a man of courage and sacrifice. In other words, he finished well. He is bound to go by chains and ropes and chains to, uh, to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome. And he said this at the very end of his life, last letter, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. That is for everyone in this room, that God has called us to finish well. How many guys are tired of people not finishing well? It hurts the church, doesn't it? It's discouraging. I've had people in my life, many people in my life, not finish well. That could be just, a divorce. Your parents could have gotten divorced. And that hurts a child, doesn't it? It could be a boss, just you'll, a boss you loved, just quit, destroyed the company or something. You know, it doesn't have to be some drastic thing. It could be a pastor that you know that had to, uh, had to go uh, because it got too hard or uh, because of immorality. Finishing well is not easy, but it's, what God, it's God's heart. Because this is what he said, straight from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, my good and faithful slave. There's that word again. You were faithful with few things and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. We want to hear well done, don't we? We want to hear that from Jesus. Well done. And by the way, if you've quit, there's grace. There's grace. If you've gotten divorced, there's grace. If you've quit a job, grace. If you blew it over and over and over with that sin, the habitual sin, that remaining sin in your life, you need to kill it. You need to not mess with it. You need not give it any more room, but there's grace. 
there's grace. Lots of grace. Why? Because of the cross. His blood covers all sin. Amen? Amen. All right. Why don't we uh, stand to our feet and uh, pray as we get into, into worship. Father, we thank you for giving us everything